Coming up on Tech Nation, Sarah Fryer, a tech journalist with Bloomberg News. She's written the book of the year, according to the Financial Times. It's called No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. What is social media asking of us? And does it want more? I also speak with Victor Huang, a former Silicon Valley venture capitalist and founder of Right to Start. This may be the right time to start your own business. He's also the author of The Rainforest, The Secret to Building the Next Silicon Valley. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Paul Ehrlich, the Bing Professor of Population Studies and Professor of Biology at Stanford University, about his book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment. One surprising fact I learned from Paul Ehrlich's latest book is that Charles Darwin never used the word evolution. Yeah, it was a surprise to me when I learned it, too. And I had read the book when I learned that. It's just <laughs> yeah. a, Where is it? Where is evolution? It, you know, it's a wonderful book to read after you already know a lot about evolution because he was one smart guy. Uh, and I'm always finding stuff in it that most people think is more recent. For things. So, uh, yeah, Darwin's one of my heroes. He got everything pretty much right. Yeah. Uh, for for what they knew in those days, he got it as right as you could possibly get it. And uh, I think all of us still consider ourselves Darwinians, even though, of course, uh, a lot has been learned, particularly in genetics since then. That's the, the big area of change is we now know a lot about the mechanism, the exact ways the genes work, although we still get a lot to learn there, too. And if we'd never thought of evolution before, when we saw the genetics, we go, hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. It, it is, I mean, it, one of the funny things is people say, well, it's just a theory. Well, it's like the theory that the Earth goes around the sun rather than vice versa. Nothing is ever certain in science. If, if I could show that Darwin was dead wrong and convince my colleagues I'd have a manuscript off to the journal Science tomorrow, and so would any other evolutionist, because that's how you, you, know, that's how you do well in science, is to show that the conventional view is wrong. So the theory of why they didn't have any ham at lunch today, is that's not a scientific theory. No, that's not a scientific theory. It certainly isn't your genes driving you to that. That's your, well, you can explain it as part of a, an evolutionary theory, but it's cultural evolution. In other words, we have, it turns out, a relatively limited amount of genetic information in our DNA. You know, when I first started out doing selection experiments on fruit flies 40-some years ago, 50-some years ago now, I thought there was hundreds of thousands or millions of genes. And that allowed us to explain it pretty well. Now we know uh, that in fruit flies, there's only something like 14,000 genes. That's a lot less than a million. And trying to figure out uh, how the genome, how all the genes work together, has become infinitely more complex. But just think about the complexity of our cultural evolution. I mean, you and I are victims of a culture gap. If we had been together, say, in a hunter-gatherer group, both of us would know virtually all of the non-genetic information that the group possessed. In other words, 100 percent of it. Very, very close. Some shaman might have a weird bit. There might be a little something <laughs> about herbs that some women knew that men didn't. And there might have been a hunting technique that meant. But basically, everybody knew everything. Now, I would wager, certainly I and I suspect you can't tell 
exactly how this microphone and that thing works. I mean, there's non-genetic information all around us and how the building is constructed and how so on. How these chairs are put together. Yeah, exactly. And or, or, you know, where this cup came from and how it was designed and so on. So now, not the smartest person, not the most knowledgeable person even has one millionth of the non-genetic information of their culture. And I think that's one of our big problems. We don't have that broad understanding that everybody, until 10,000 years ago, everybody had. What you're talking about is everything is evolving. Everything living is evolving and co-evolving. I think that's extremely important. Yeah, it's one of these everything affects everything else uh, situations. But the main thing that we've done is develop these incredible brains and develop this huge supply of non-genetic information. Now, there's culture in other animals. Chimps, for instance, do different things in different populations, and and they learn from their... Even some birds learn techniques. Oyster catchers learn how to open oysters from their parents. But no other organism has ever had the level of non-genetic information that we have. And that's what's made us the dominant animal. That's why we are changing the atmosphere. We've changed the land surface. We're ruining the oceans. We're spreading toxic chemicals everywhere because we're really ingenious and have developed this huge body of non-genetic information. The problem is, of course, what we're doing with it. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Paul Ehrlich about his book, The Dominant Animal, Human Evolution and the Environment. While now retired, he's still a Stanford professor, the Bing Professor of Population Studies Emeritus. I'm Moira again. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Sarah Fryer, a tech reporter with Bloomberg News. She's covered such familiar social media companies as Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter. She's here today with her book, No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. Then I speak with Victor Huang. He's founded Right to Start. That's right to start your business right now, whoever you are, wherever you are. He's also author of The Rainforest, the secret to building the next Silicon Valley. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. No Filter, the inside story of Instagram, has been named the book of the year by the Financial Times. I speak with its author, Sarah Fryer. Well, Sarah, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you for having me. Now, I think we better start out since not every listener uses Instagram. They have sort of an idea uh, and others use it intensely. What's the social media Instagram? What did it start out as? What is it today? Instagram has essentially become this benchmark for relevance in our current society. It started out as a place to share mobile phone photos, which if you remember the excitement of being able to take a picture on your phone, Instagram was the place that made those photos look way better with their filters. And people 
who used Instagram since then have sort of been trained on this idea that everything they post on Instagram is allowed to be more beautiful and perfect than the reality. There's that culture of performance, of of personal branding on Instagram that has made it this, this place where we show off who we want to be seen as uh, and build businesses. And basically, if you're building any sort of visual business, whether you are a fitness instructor or a cake decorator, you are building it on Instagram now. It's completely transformed the way that those things get started. And if you are a young person, Instagram is the place where you go to to compare yourself to your peers and say, you know, who is more interesting? Good idea or bad idea. <laughs> oh, it's both. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, who's having an interesting life? Who's dating who? Uh, it is the primary social network for that generation. And and I would say for people of my generation too, I'm, I'm in my 30s. We had Facebook in college, but Facebook is, is crowded now. So we've moved along to Instagram. Moved to Instagram. And what also happened is that when you were in college and you were on Facebook, as an example, you were on your laptop, you were on a computer. And then we kind of went through tablets. This is part of moving all of us onto these smartphones. This is where we're living our lives. And if you can imagine, Instagram has been around 10 years, which seems like a long time, but also in the course of history in technology, it's not. It's a decade of transformation where we all just became imbued with this reverence for the visual because of carrying these mobile phones around and being able to capture what was happening in our lives, not just when we were at home on our computers, but integrating the smartphone into our visits to restaurants, our our weddings, our our travel, our outings with friends. Uh, we have fewer of those lately with coronavirus, but that is what what Instagram has turned into. It's our companion for life's experiences. I have to say I'm reading a historical fiction right now, and it's uh, of the time of Henry VIII, and there are these pageants, and, and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, who's, you had to be there. You literally had to stand there and be there, although you couldn't look at the king, you know, and yeah, it was, and they, how do you get the message from here to here, and nobody has this. It was so hard reading this because so many things could have been solved so easily just by what we expect today. Things have changed that much. It's really incredible that we now have what started as a a window into the world of others on Instagram. Like Instagram is a place where you could see into somebody's life, basically turning everyone into mini reality stars or or mini curators of, of whatever they wanted to curate. And that really opened up a lot of a lot of possibility to build new kinds of communities. Like if you were really into skateboarding or really into gardening, you could find the people who are showing you their best version of that on Instagram. Now let's turn to the economy of influence. It's like, hmm, all of these influencers, digital influencers, new term, but that was born essentially out of Instagram. 
Well, what happened? And, and it was almost happened against the wishes of Instagram itself. I, they were trying to build this place for craft and art and, and culture. And then they were a little bit horrified when the accounts that they had promoted to their users saying, these are the suggested people we want you to follow because we think they're setting a good example. Well, those people got quite popular because of Instagram's recommendation. And then with those hundreds of thousands of users, they were able to say to brands, you know, I've got a bigger, more focused audience than a magazine, than a, than a website. Like I have built this personal relationship with these people who will take my advice and do what I say. You know, if I post myself in an outfit, they want to know where I bought it. I might as well profit off of that. And then this, this economy of influence is born and people start striving for that higher follower account because that number is now equal to monetary opportunity. Not always, but often. And so Instagram sees this happen and at first they're horrified and they ban these people from their suggested user app. But eventually they start to really lean in and start to, to decide who becomes famous and promote them on the at Instagram account. If you if you think about influence on Instagram, this this company account to this day has more followers than any Kardashian, than any soccer star. Like this is the the shaper of our culture, this Instagram account. And they started to be kingmakers. And at the same time, they were convincing regular or I should say mainstream celebrities to post on Instagram. Mainstream celebrities thought that if they were to get rid of the mystery of their lives, be a little bit too open about what was going on and who they were, that, that they would stop being as famous. But the opposite turned out to be true. The more people shared about their you know, vulnerable moments or their behind the scenes life, the more interested their followers were and the, the more invested people were in their success. So regular celebrities became influencers, influencers turned into regular celebrities. And today the Instagram you see is quite commercial. We're always interested in the start of these things. And uh, the two co-founders, Kevin Sistrom and, and Mike Krieger started it in 2010 18 months later, 13 employees, they sell it for a billion dollars to Facebook. That's a shock. That's an absolute shock. If you look at the number today, I mean, tech acquisitions have really ballooned in value. But at the time, that was totally unheard of. Nobody had ever paid a billion dollars for a mobile app before, let alone one with only 13 employees and no revenue and only 25 million users. But what Facebook saw in Instagram was a future competitor. They saw an app that was already capturing the attention of young people on mobile that was already quite influential in our culture. Barack Obama used it. Kim Kardashian used it. Justin Bieber used it. And, and that was where things were happening. It was on Instagram. And Facebook thought, we've got to own this because we don't want Twitter or Google or anyone else to own it. And we also want to make sure that we figure out this mobile thing. Because as you said earlier in our conversation, Facebook started out on desktop and it was painful for them to shift that design to mobile and figure out how to make advertising work on mobile phones. That was like a, a huge problem for them. Their stock, once they went public shortly after the Instagram acquisition, their stock cratered by half. 
because investors were so worried about whether they would figure out mobile and Instagram had it set. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Sarah Fryer, a tech reporter with Bloomberg News and a frequent contributor to Bloomberg Businessweek. She's extensively covered such familiar social media companies as Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter. She's here today with her book, which has been named the Book of the Year by the Financial Times. It's No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. Well, you can't get to the inside story without talking to a lot of people. And I understand you talked to 200 people. I talked to hundreds of people. And and I think what was different about this book adventure than maybe some other business books people have read is I didn't just talk to current and former employees. I wouldn't say that this is a tech founder hero story where you disrupt an industry, make a bunch of money and have lessons of of success, although part of it has elements of that. I wanted to really draw the connection between Instagram and the tech ecosystem at large in our culture. And so I talked to competitors of Instagram at Snapchat and Twitter. I talked to people who were becoming famous on the app. I talked to parents. I talked to psychiatrists. I talked to teens, um, high school librarians. I, I tried to talk to people who whose lives have been shaped by this app to draw the connection between the drama internally at Instagram, the clashing egos with Facebook, the, the threats to growth and survival, with the decisions that they made, the founders' values, the the things that they chose to spend their time on, and then how those product decisions then affected us, how we live, what we value, what we strive for. Any acquisition by a large company always brings changes to the company that's been acquired. What were the immediate challenges for Instagram when they were acquired by Facebook. The one of the craziest stories that I learned was right after Instagram joins Facebook. Everyone's excited. They've been working to the bone. They they have not slept. They're they're desperate for Facebook's resources to help them after all these sleepless nights trying to keep the app alive with all this fast growth. And the Facebook growth team meets with them and says well, we would love to help you, but here's the thing. Before we do that, we have to make sure that Instagram photo sharing is not a threat to Facebook photo sharing. Once we figure out whether you will hurt Facebook, then we can help you. So the study ended up inconclusive. And of course, Facebook helped Instagram grow. And in fact, was a a very pressuring of Instagram to grow in the way that Facebook wanted But that was a sign of things to come, that Instagram was, you know, brought in and every headline said, oh, Instagram will get to be independent within Facebook. Kevin Systrom remains in charge of this app. Um, But the reality was more complicated. Facebook wanted Instagram to serve the goals of Facebook and was not as interested in Instagram maintaining what it wanted to be. And there were a lot of clashes between the Instagram founders who who really had this, this reverence for culture and the people who were making the best content on the app, catering to them directly. Facebook was all about growth. They were all about scale. What Facebook wanted was 
numbers. They wanted more attention, more users, more time spent on their apps. And so that DNA started to slowly infuse itself into Instagram. And the founders really resisted a lot of the things that Facebook was known for, like excessive notifications to open the app and recommendations of of people to follow. They wanted it to be more more simple. So Instagram tried to do what Facebook wanted them to do. Kevin Systrom wanted to appease his boss. And Mark Zuckerberg appreciates if you are growing, if you are crushing the competition, and if your revenue is going up. And Instagram accomplished all of those things, and they were actually accelerating in growth when Facebook comes under fire for the 2016 presidential election. And Zuckerberg starts to think, why have we been investing so much in Instagram's success when that might actually cannibalize Facebook's future, that it might actually be bad for my legacy, the thing I created, if we let Instagram continue to grow as much as we have. And so we started to cut off resources for Instagram and say, you can't have as much headcount as you want. You can't have as much opportunity to advertise on Facebook as you want. And everything that you do has to go through me. The old squeeze play. (laughs) And so the founders realized that they were actually in charge, that they were just directors of product for Instagram under Mark Zuckerberg, the only CEO that there was room for at Facebook. Okay, so we've said revenues, always key. We've seen where the influencers can use their accounts on Instagram to get paid to push product or to go to events so the events get promoted. But how does Instagram make money? Where is its revenues? Instagram makes money the same way Facebook does, which is promoted posts within the within the feed. As you're scrolling through, it'll look just like an Instagram post, but it'll be from a brand. And they've started to do that in their Instagram stories feature, which is which is their disappearing posts as well. And what's new this year is they have started to transition into taking a slice of that creator economy, that influencer economy we were talking about. They have now made it possible if you have a a brand that you're building on Instagram, you can actually sell products directly through the app to your followers. And eventually, uh, Instagram will be taking a cut of this and hoping that it will be the next big business for Facebook after advertising. So you got sort of a a Pinterest eBay... uh insertion, eBay store insertion into Instagram. <laughs> you know, this confluence of all all social media. Yeah, there it's it's like a it's like um well what Instagram has accomplished is it's made it possible for each of us to have our own collection of, of media that we consume. So a person who is a celebrity to me is is not the same as a person who's celebrity to you. We could even be in the same household, in the same age group, but think completely different people are famous because there are so many folks on Instagram building followings and sharing with their audiences. So what this what this does is it, it makes it easier for for people to sell very specific types of products to 
to an audience that maybe would be harder to find if you were just selling on Amazon or eBay. Like that's a general audience. But if you are, for instance, um, wanting to buy, uh, there's this influencer, Katie Storino. She she uh, goes to stores and tries on their largest size and it's not big enough for her. And she's like, listen, I want to spend money on your fashion. Make it in my size. Uh, supersize the look. And and she has been, used that platform, the commentary on lack of appropriate sizing for women in the U.S. to to sell a whole line of products dedicated to the problems that plus-size women have. This is her people. She They follow her. They love her. It's like this world that she's created that you wouldn't really see if you went to Target. Like, you wouldn't see that line, but you have an audience that's captive to it. Now, you mentioned young people a lot. What do we know about the demographics of the influencers and the demographics of the audiences? Well, Instagram does skew young because young people are living life through their phones. They're not watching cable news. They're not reading a a physical newspaper. They're learning it all via video and via memes. And, And so I think that Instagram... While some some older folks, I think, would use Instagram as a place that almost replaces Facebook as a social network for themselves, younger people see it as a, a place to consume media. When the coronavirus lockdown happened, Instagram became the venue for live musical acts and uh fitness classes, all those things were happening on Instagram Live that would have happened in person but couldn't. And it, and it worked out. A lot of people went and entertained themselves that way with that kind of live audience. Now, in the case of Twitter, you have so many letters you can work with here on each tweet. Is there a, a length to the video that you can have on Instagram? Well, in the very early days, Instagram only allowed square photos And everyone thought that that was strange. But with that constraint comes creativity. Uh, If you have to make a photo that's a square, you'll you'll think of photos in a new way. It's the same thing that happened with Twitter. If you have to only fit 180 characters in a tweet, or now it's 240 characters, you will get creative about how you say that and and really work on making that element good. Um, And so that's what the founders wanted. And since then, Instagram has proliferated into a bunch of different media types. You have short video, you have long video, you have um, reels, which are essentially um, competitive with TikTok. If you know what TikTok is, it's like a it's like a video sharing app where people copy each other's memes and try to just do them, do funny dances and um, keep it positive. So, so Instagram has become a lot more complicated, but also with a lot more opportunity to create whatever kind of content you want to create. So there are 6 million Insta celebrities on Instagram. What does that mean? There are people who have millions of followers that you and I have never heard of. There are millions of them and, and they are building businesses. This is becoming their career. Uh, and, and it's, it's essentially like like if you are anyone in the world now you can run your own media company 
that's what it is. You, you build an audience, you advertise against it, you create the content. It's hard work. You have to be consistent. You have to be innovative. Um, you have to work with, with different brands to, to do the advertising or the merchandising. And a lot of, a lot of people who are trying to do this are, are, uh, either struggling at it or some of them are doing really extremely well, like enough to drop out of college and make a living out of it. I'm speaking with Sarah Fryer, the author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, I'll speak with Victor Huang. He went from Silicon Valley venture capitalist to vice president for entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation. We'll hear about his new venture, Right to Start. That would be Start Your Own Venture. Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Sarah Fryer, the author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. You'd spend uh, a lot of time throughout the book considering the impact on people, the impact on society. Every Instagram account would have the chance to be not just a window into someone's lived experience, but also their individual media operation. Now, we've known that you got to have this whole media operation, but the commitment is into your lived life. Do we know yet uh, what where the healthy line is between how far you let people in, how much you construct versus this could be very damaging? Well, I think I think that we need to be cognizant of the fact that Instagram has trained us all to curate, to build a personal brand, to know what works and what doesn't. And even if you see an influencer um, sharing aspects of their lives or going deep into, into what's happening, it's a curated story. It's, it's strategic. That's what's happening. And, 
And it all goes back to the earliest days of Instagram when they decided to filter photos. Initially, the filter was meant to make these grainy photos on the iPhone look better, but iPhone photos got better. Instagram still had this culture of everything you post having to be more beautiful or artistic or perfect than it actually was. Well, the co-founders, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, left Instagram in, in 2018, very early on. Where are they now? What are they doing? They're thinking about their next thing. Uh, Kevin Systrom wanted, and, and Mike Krieger too, they wanted to take the time to to pause, have their kids, spend time with them, maybe do a little bit of skiing, a little bit of art purchasing and, and a little bit of writing. And, and, um, they, they did, they have tinkered around on some projects. They have this project called RT.live that tracks the uh, likelihood of an increased prevalence of coronavirus in a state, whether a state is getting safer or less safe. Um, and, and that's one of the only projects that's been public from them so far. Well, I guess they can afford to do anything they want, but at least they're still friends. <laughs> That's right. This is the great news. They're still friends. They're still friends. They're still very close. And what about the other 11 employees? Where are they? You know, one of the craziest things about the Instagram acquisition is the the early employees didn't make bank. Some of them, uh, maybe a, three or four of them made made money that was enough to make them rich for the rest of their lives. Um, but the vast majority of them just got a little salary bump. <laughs> and it was actually very, very painful for them to go through that because if you are in Silicon Valley and you are at a hot app like Instagram that gets acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars, which is totally, as we said, unheard of in that era, all your friends and family and colleagues and you know, everyone expects that you can just like retire or become a venture capitalist or an angel investor at least. And that's not what happens. So there are some very bitter feelings among those early employees. This app and all of the apps have to do with our attention. And, you know, there's, there's only so many people and so much attention. Where do you think this is all going? more of our attention. <laughs> That's what Facebook sees. No, no, really. I mean, I, I so almost think about like, you know, the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax, where where they, they're cutting down the truffula trees to make these sweaters and, uh, and eventually the, all the trees are gone and there's like one seed left. And, and it's like with these companies, Facebook and the rest in technology, the natural resource is not a tree or oil or anything. It's our attention. That is what it is. And so they are competing with our sleep. They're competing with our time with our families. They're competing with our work days. And that's the the next step is trying to figure out how to integrate themselves into more of our habits. Well, Sarah, congratulations on the Financial Times Best Book of the Year, your very first book. I don't know what you're going to do for a second book, but I, uh, no pressure. No pressure, Sarah. Um, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. Really appreciate you chatting with me. Thank you so much.
My guest today is Sarah Fryer. The book is No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Innovation is the key behind everything really new. Victor Huang is a former Silicon Valley venture capitalist with a long career in entrepreneurship. He views the great innovation success of Silicon Valley as most like a rainforest. Victor, welcome to the program. Thank you, Moira. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you can talk about all the economy all you want, wring your hands about it, rejoice about it. But the U.S. economy is really driven by innovation. It's true. It's one of these things that doesn't get talked about a lot. If you listen to our political debate or the discourse across the country, you look at the presidential campaigns, the presidential debates, even the party platforms, the headlines, you don't really hear about innovation that much. Uh, you hear about the immediate emergencies and the crises, but you don't hear about what the, uh, where, where the innovation comes from that's going to get us out of the holes that we're in. Now, we know innovation happens for technology in Silicon Valley, uh, in for biotechnology in uh, South San Francisco in the Envires. Uh, many cities and nations around the world have tried to recreate similar hubs of innovation. Some do, many fail. Why is that? Should the failures or those with limited success will say, could they know they were going to fail right from the start? Well, the thing about innovation is that the the root conditions are actually really important. So a lot of people try to build uh, these constructions. They'll build you know innovation districts or innovation centers or fancy buildings or capital funds. But what's so important about innovation is it's not something that you can build externally without addressing what's internal. And so when you think about innovation, you have to think of it almost as an organic structure. You can't build a tree without the roots in place. And so many people try to build the trees without the roots. And, and we see that happen all the time. You know, I've, I've worked in communities uh, around the world working for, for governments and economies trying to build, you know, innovation economies. And they'll, they'll actually go out and they'll, they'll build fancy buildings and they'll build great big capital funds before they get to the figuring out, like, what makes people tick and how do you get people to be innovative? Well, you write in your book, The the Rainforest, the foundation of the rainforest model is the acknowledgement that humans are biological beings. How does that have anything to do with how we do business? Well, this is the thing that's, I think, so interesting around innovation processes is they're deeply human. I mean, you know, we, we know you know, ourselves in our own lives, uh, what makes what makes us be creative? You know, we, we, we see it in our children, we see it in our friends and our family, and we see it in our coworkers. But then when we start thinking about how do you drive innovation across an entire economy, you hardly hear people talk about that because it seems abstract and distant and far away. And I think this is actually something that Silicon Valley uh, really brings to the conversation because Silicon Valley, over the course of several decades, really started to figure out you know, innovation is something you do in small, super small scale. It's what you do sitting across in a coffee shop from someone else at Bucks, for instance. It's what you do sketching out ideas in a napkin. It's what you do sitting in a little room with a whiteboard with people. And everything great that was ever built, whether in Silicon Valley or, or anywhere in the world, always started with something like that, right? People sitting around a room 
around a table, sketching stuff out, spitballing ideas. Just a couple or one even. It could be one person who heard an idea from someone else who has a eureka moment in the shower, or it could be two people who've never met before, you know, bouncing ideas around uh, over a cafe. Um, you know, so the Valley figured that out. And that a lot of those ideas actually got embodied into what we call design thinking now. If you actually look at the principles of design thinking, uh, they are a lot of the human elements of innovation. What's happened, though, is we seem to have divorced the human elements of innovation from what we think of as the broader economy as a functioning entity. And I'm saying in a lot of my work is that you've got we've got to meld those back together again. You're not going to have macro unless you can fix the micro. Let's turn to your book, The Rainforest. You funded, developed, drove a number of innovative enterprises in Silicon Valley. At what point did the vision of the rainforest come to you? What is that? I, uh, so the book, The Rainforest, came out in uh, 2012. And uh, looking back now, it's kind of amazing to think about how the whole thing emerged. It was really an attempt for, um, to try to make sense of what I was seeing in the Valley, because you know, uh, the Valley doesn't fit a lot of the models that economists say are what make great, great economic systems. I mean, the taxes are high, and there's a lot of regulatory burden. Um, a, a lot of the things that you don't think should be conducive to economic growth uh, are actually all present in the valley. But there are these other things that are counterweighting that are hugely valuable that don't get measured in what we think of as economic value. And those are around the cultural factors, the attitudes and the mindsets and the interactions between all the people in the community. And so uh, I view um, uh, the Rainforest book as almost, it's like my thesis project because I went to I went to college at Harvard uh, and law school at the University of Chicago. And the interesting thing about you know going to uh, Harvard, my first week at Harvard, they allow you to shop classes where you can go and uh, try different classes out before you register for them. And I actually went to uh, the economics 101 class um, uh, taught by you know former White House advisor to the president on economics. And after the first day of class, I left the class and I never went back. I actually never took introductory economics at Harvard because it didn't make sense to me. Uh, and the reason was because my parents had been entrepreneurs, they'd been immigrants, and I'd seen the building of enterprises firsthand. And I thought the things that they talk about in economics, I don't see the things that I see in that body of thought. And so uh, I, I've spent my life really trying to figure out how do you create prosperity? What causes that to happen? And, um, and I got influenced by a bunch of ideas along the way, including theories of biology from great professors like E.O. Wilson uh, to uh, uh, some of the leading design thinkers in the Valley to, uh, from my legal training, uh, scholars who you know, realized uh, the, me the mechanisms of transaction costs and legal barriers and how they actually get in the way of, of uh, human flourishing. And so once you start to put it all together, you realize it actually forms this picture, uh, which is different than what people normally think of as economic value. So that was at the heart of the rainforest was that you actually can't you know, that human economic systems are like natural ecosystems, like rainforests. And rainforests flourish not because you plant lots of trees or not because you maximize the yield of a tree. It's because of the interaction of all the environmental factors. So our natural rainforest grows because of the sunlight and the nutrients and the qualities of the air and the interaction of all the plants and the animals. And you only uh, can get that to work if you are actually able to generate that kind of dynamic diversity, right? And uh, and that's how you preserve rainforests, and that's how you grow rainforests. Uh, and so, if we want to create these kinds of natural environments that actually allow for um, uh, for healthy uh, prosperity, 
you've got to try to look at look towards nature and start to replicate some of those mechanisms. And those things, you know, the equivalent of sunlight and nutrients in the soil for human systems are trust, paying it forward, goodwill, uh, collaboration, uh, the desire to, you know, be motivated by things more than like immediate return. And you look at the people in the Valley who've done some of those brilliant things, they were motivated by such big things. And they had so many people pitch in along the way to make these things possible. And so the behavior of uh, people in the Valley, I found historically, um, I think there's some argument that the Valley has changed a lot in the last uh, decade. But if you look at it historically, it was a different culture at work. And, and I think uh, that culture uh, is really, it was a really special thing and a very special moment in time. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Victor Huang, a longtime Silicon Valley regular as the co-founder and CEO of T2 Venture Creation. He is also the former vice president for entrepreneurship at the Kauffman Foundation. Most recently, he's the founder and CEO of Right to Start and author of The Rainforest, The Secret to Building the Next Silicon Valley. Well, we did mention the Kauffman Foundation here, and uh, not everybody knows about the Kauffman Foundation. So tell us uh, about it and tell us uh, what you did there. So for those in the entrepreneurship sector, um, a lot of them know about the Kauffman Foundation because uh, as a philanthropic entity, it's been the leading force for entrepreneurship as a philanthropic cause for about three decades now. And so the foundation has really been at the forefront of even defining that that was possible. A lot of people in philanthropy historically didn't even think that entrepreneurship could be a philanthropic cause. And uh, Kaufman really uh, decided early on, yes, this was going to be it, you know, the purpose of the foundation. And it really became that. So I, for four years, I led the entrepreneurship department, uh, which was a huge honor and a great thrill for me, uh, because as part of that, we were, you, one is really given this vantage point that you can look across the entire um, you know, panorama of entrepreneurial activity in the country. And you get to see, you know, uh, things happening, people doing great stuff in all 50 states and beyond. Um, and, uh, and you're able to shape and influence it in ways, I think, that were really powerful. So one of the things we did, for instance, is we were able to bring together people across all 50 states. There's over 1,500 people now involved in this effort uh, to create uh, champions for entrepreneurship at the ground level. Uh, and to actually rebuild and redesign the way economic development is done, the way that community development is done, the way that business support is done across the country with this lens of ecosystems, that can we actually build ecosystems that are truly flourishing as opposed to, you know, running another program or building another incubator, uh, which often gets you know segmented or siloed off. The, the premise we were able to do at Kaufman is to really build this into a broader movement around ecosystems as a force for economic transformation. I'm a big fan of Ewing Kaufman, who founded the foundation. He said something that I've always loved. He said, trust everybody that you work with. You'll get screwed every once in a while, but people will want to do business with you. I thought that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. It's true. Uh, Mr. Kaufman was a tremendous man. In 1950, he decided he wanted to start selling health supplements, nutraceuticals, out of the back of his trunk. Um, that was the founding of UN uh, of uh, Marion Laboratories, which uh, grew into a six billion dollar uh, valued company by the 1980s, before it was acquired uh, by Dow, and um, that gave birth to so many things uh, along the way. And you look at what the, the foundation has done over the years; it's been the seed round or Series A funder. I can say this because people in the Valley will get what that means of 
so many important things in the entrepreneurial world that people don't even know about. So Stardex, the accelerator at Stanford, got its early money from the Kauffman Foundation. AngelList, uh, the online platform for angel investing, got a, a good investment from the Kauffman Foundation very early on. Entrepreneurs Organization. Um, the list is just a long list of things that really might not never have been born or may, may have uh, really turned into something different if not for the foundation. So it's really been a very powerful force. The thing that's happened now is when I was at the foundation, we um, realized that the Kauffman Foundation couldn't do this alone. There's so many other foundations that are getting into this work. And so we built a consortium of philanthropies doing this called the Entrepreneurship Funders Network, which is now, uh, I think, over 60 foundations doing entrepreneurship-focused work uh, across the world. And it was, it's was it been exciting to see that start to build up as momentum into a real force. Uh, so it's not just you know a few foundations here and there doing it. There's actually a, a broader network of foundations all trying to do this well. Now, just before the pandemic started, we didn't know the pandemic was going to start. Everybody started a lot of things. You started a new venture, Right to Start. In fact, it's righttostart.org. It's a nonprofit. That's right. This is um, a gap that I saw uh, emerging. Actually, it's a gap I've seen for the last couple of decades, but I saw it really starkly when I was at the Kauffman Foundation, which is that there is no advocacy infrastructure in place for entrepreneurs. Uh, if you look at every issue that matters in American life, if you believe in civil liberties, you have the ACLU. If you believe in guns rights, you've got the NRA. If you believe in entrepreneurial opportunity as like a core issue in American life, who's the voice for that? How is that coming into being? How is that affecting civic life at the city level, at the state level, at the regional level, at the national level? And and so that's what we really wanted to do is to provide hope where there's currently a hole in our national discourse. And so what Right to Start is doing is building out a voice for entrepreneurs that really connects all the different voices that are out there in many cities and states. We've already started to build this network. We've got 10 cities now in our uh, network of uh, we call them ambassadors. We're starting to get uh, work with foundations on the ground in different communities to build up their entrepreneurial capacity, driving civic engagement, driving broader public participation in entrepreneurial activity. Uh, we even have uh, states that are looking at introducing legislation around this issue, around right to start laws. Uh, and are the issues that we cover are really broad. They're all the things that touch entrepreneurial activity, which is uh, which is uh, a broad-based spectrum of issues. But most importantly, it's just getting this issue on the map because it's just something that's not talked about. And and what the research now shows is how important this is. Um, and most people don't realize this, but when people talk about the need for more jobs, they don't realize that almost all net job growth comes from young businesses. And it's the businesses under five years that drive almost all job growth. Yet you hear people talk about you know, and the incentives and the funding gets directed towards large incumbent corporations all the time. So we've actually got to shift the narrative that if we care about creating opportunity, we care about issues like equity and access and growth, we have to actually think about entrepreneurship and think about it in a way that actually cuts across the whole uh, civic landscape. When you talk about entrepreneurship, are you saying that everybody has to be an entrepreneur? Everyone needs to start a business or can? Or are, are there gradations? Are this participation in entrepreneurship? What, what are you talking about there? Right. Not everyone needs to start a business. I mean, if everyone decided to start a business tomorrow, the economy, you know, we would stop getting things made. We'd stop getting our iPhones and we'd stop getting all the things that are you know, a lot of necessary goods. Uh, but everyone sh should be entrepreneurial 
and everyone should have the right and the opportunity to be an entrepreneur if they want to. So uh, there was a survey done um, that showed that 62% of Americans actually have a dream business they'd love to start someday. And 41% of them would start it within six months if they actually could. And then in reality, in those six months, less than 2% of people actually do start a business. So there is this gap between what people's hopes and dreams are and what they actually feel like they're able to do. And so there's a gap already there. There's an entrepreneurial capacity gap that we're not fulfilling. But then even within people, even people that want to work within a large corporation, for instance, or work in a more established institution, need to have the skills of entrepreneurship and innovation with them. So uh, design thinking, um, uh, the ability to actually understand how to work in dynamic environments, the ability to solve problems when they're undefined, um, those types of skills, they're not being taught. I like to also think about the entrepreneurial mindset. You know, we got all these companies. There's only one CEO. There's <laughs> usually one or a couple of founders, but we got a whole lot of people. And if we talk about the field of technology as we do in Silicon Valley, which means you're building things that have never been built before, or in the San Francisco area, just up the road, where biotechnology, things that have never done been done before, going from science to a real product, a registered product that people can actually buy safely. Uh, what we're talking about is a whole experience of entrepreneurship. The whole enterprise is entrepreneurial. It has to have this entrepreneurial orientation to actually participate and succeed. That's really it. I mean, it, it is, in the end, it's, it's a mindset. It's like a lot of people in the Valley say, the Silicon Valley is not a place, it's a state of mind. And what I found, though, is that if you travel the, the country or the world, which I've been lucky to do, you find that most people have never experienced it. Therefore, they don't know what it looks like and feels like to be in a highly innovative environment, to have role models that can teach you, to be, to be within organizations that know how to innovate. And so they don't know what, what it looks like and feels like. Therefore, they don't have anything to, to copy or emulate or learn from. And so there's actually um, a degradation that happens over time. If you're not intentionally trying to disperse this model of learning, uh, then you naturally find places that start to fall back. And, and I've seen this. I mean, I've done work you know, for uh, the World Bank and USAID and many different economies around the world. And what always gets me is how a lot of things that people in highly innovative environments take for granted and just seem so obvious uh, just seems so hard for people who've never been in those types of environments before. We usually don't choose who we get to work with. In fact, we we say we have to work with so-and-so or these set of people. And I was especially impressed with some of the stories uh, sort of from the Old West that explained what it's like when we're we're trying to get something done, but we're with a whole lot of people we don't naturally fit together with. Mm. Well, there's... Uh... A historian named Frederick Jackson Turner, who's famous for what he called the frontier thesis, which is that the story of America is essentially about a line that moves from east to west as the frontier moves. And in fact, you can look at the story of all of human civilization in the same way. If you turn America on its side, it's actually the story of how civilizations were born. And essentially, it's around how people that uh, don't know each other come together to start to form communities and tribes and start to work together to survive in situations where being separate won't let them survive. Um, and if you look at the story of uh, the American frontier and where a lot of these patterns of behavior came from, you know, starting in the area around the middle of the country near Kansas City, 
uh, people took the uh, California and Oregon Trail out west. And those, those drives, people would travel from all over the U.S., the eastern seaboard, to come to uh, Independence, Missouri. And within the span of a few days, they would get put into teams of um, you know, wagons, up to 100 wagons. And uh, they'd have people whose job it was to hustle and organize everybody together. They'd have people assign people into different roles. And they'd go on these long journeys to the West uh, where these teams had to form. And these were six-month journeys or so where people could you know, die and, and starve and suffer in many ways. And so people depended on each other. And so that idea that strangers would come together uh, to find ways to solve problems in harsh environments is really at the core. And if you think about that, that's essentially the startup experience. It's people being put together uh, to survive and figure out how they can work together, share their best skills with one another, and find ways to survive. That doesn't mean everyone likes each other. It doesn't mean everyone's always happy. Uh, and there's plenty of equity issues along the way. There's a lot of people that suffered during those journeys. The Native Americans were left out of that story, and many people uh, were not included in the prosperity that came out of that work, which is all true. Um, yet at the same time, you see the spirit. And so even in the middle of the country today, the spirit of barn raisings is still there. There's a program uh, across the country called One Million Cups, uh, which not a lot of people in the major metro areas of the country know. But One Million Cups is in over 160 communities across the country. And it's effectively like a barn raising for startup businesses. People get in front of a room of uh, people and they just say, uh, and the community says, how can we as a community help you? And they present their ideas and the community gets together and, and they share their support and lend a hand. It's paying it forward in the spirit of you know the, the American frontier. The governor of North Dakota, Doug Bergram, is a huge fan of uh, One Million Cups. And he says he even cries at One Million Cups because he's so moved by the experience of people coming together to help out their friends start businesses. And I think there's still something there that this entrepreneurship only flourishes, innovation only flourishes when people are willing to come together in these teams and they may not know each other, but they find common cause. Victor, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you, Maura. It's been a real pleasure and honor to, to be on your show. Victor Huang is the founder and CEO of Right to Start on the web at righttostart.org. His book is The Rainforest, The Secret to Building the Next Silicon Valley. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.